Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, it is early August and we're starting to get uh, case teasers. It really, uh, I think we've said this before, but it really feels like very recently that we finished up the, with uh, Kozak and also um, Jerry Anderson. And now we're getting, you know, case teasers for a case that's coming out in just a couple of days. It's crazy how fast the offseason goes by. Well, it goes by so quickly because we have wonderful competitions like Trial by Combat, like Top Gun, like Gladiator that kind of keep us involved with Mock Trial. We're still thinking about it. There's still stuff going on. And so you're right. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago that we were talking about Trial by Combat. And now here we are getting ready for the next case, get to become a all year round activity. Oh God, <laughs> that's, that's terrifying. Um, yeah, no, it's speaking of, uh, those off season tournaments. So, uh, this episode, as you guys will figure out is more about the board meeting that happened a couple weeks ago. I, I was there out in Cincinnati. We do actually have another episode that has already been recorded that I am in the process of editing that deals with some of those other competitions. We're hoping to release that very soon. Um, it just takes me a little bit longer to edit uh, episodes where we have special guests. Uh, So we're looking forward to releasing that, but we definitely wanted to jump on the mics in the meantime and talk about everything that happened at the board meeting. Uh, It was a lot of fun. It was the second board meeting that I've been to Uh, last year. I was out in Vegas this year. I got to go to Cincinnati and I believe this was the first board meeting in anyone's recent memory where they had a 100% 100 attendance. Every current director uh, was at the meeting, which I think led to a, a really productive and interesting meeting. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to discuss it. I unfortunately was not there, but uh, I have followed it closely enough that I feel like I was there in spirit. Uh, and it definitely, I mean, we kind of first saw, I think everyone did, that this was going to be a particularly interesting board meeting considering what has happened this year. Uh, but also, even if you looked at the agenda beforehand, there were a lot of really, really interesting agenda items that are going to really affect the way that we do mock trial. I mean, the thing that's crazy to me is that there were a lot of little things that I don't even think were being really discussed that much on perjuries that absolutely are changing how we go about pairing teams, how we go about uh, doing openings and closings. And we'll get to all that good stuff in a bit. But I mean, I'm excited that if I'm judging a tournament next year or something, I may come in and, you know, mock trial may look very, very different all of a sudden. Yeah. And to the, the notion of the meeting too, I wanted to say as the person who is frequently on a transparency kick and as some members of the board or friends of mine know, I, I think the meeting should be live streamed and things like that. So I was encouraged to see that Amta live tweeted the meeting. Um, Mm -hmm. That I think is a small step that I think could be improved upon significantly, uh, but is a step in the right direction. This is not something I've been to two of these now. This is not something that needs to be like a secret meeting in a, you know, castle somewhere off in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. Like, This is just a meeting where a whole bunch of people who love Mock Trial try to do their best to do good things to Mock Trial, right? It it is a productive and positive experience, and I think the more exposure that the community gets to the meeting, the more the community will see that this is a place where good things will happen. Right, and it's so true that, I mean, obviously the board are there trying to help improve the activity, but... 
the fact that it's being live tweeted, the fact that we're just talking about it now goes to this point that these are things that everyone needs to be aware of. I would inc- I would love it if there was some magical way to ensure that one person from every program, obviously that would be a ridiculous number of people, but if everyone could come and see it and be a part of that discussion, at least and hear what's being discussed, we can maybe have a better appreciation for what some of the meaning behind these rules and maybe why some of them got passed or didn't. And I, I think that I remember uh, we saw a lot of posts on perjuries about uh, different people discussing them before the meeting. And I know that a lot of people wrote to uh, various AMTA board members about their opinions on issues. I know I did. And I think that I, I don't know what's happened in the past on these issues, but I'm definitely encouraged that our community is starting to get more comfortable with speaking out and talking to the board about these issues Again, these are affecting all of us. They're going to really affect how we do mock trial in the future. And I think that it's good that people are feeling more supported to go out and reach out to the right uh, people to have their voices be heard at that meeting. And my understanding is that there were a number of students at the meeting this year. Again, I don't know how many were there in past years, but I do think that this is a good sign that we're increasing those numbers of transparency. And like you said, Ben, hopefully it will reach a point where you know, whether it's live streamed or there's some way that every single person that wants to be a part of it can be there, regardless of where their geographic location or financial situation is. Yeah, because to that last point, you know, so there was, uh, I, I my understanding is from chatting with a few directors, uh, is that there were a lot more guests there this year than there typically are. Uh, and I think there tends to be some lip service to that being a good thing by uh, sometimes by members of the board. And I'm not always convinced that all of them believe that. (laughs) Um, I think that there is probably a comfort that has been established over the course of many years in these board meetings being somewhat insulated. And particularly now, given what happened with the national championship uh, and just given the growth and the changes that we're seeing in this activity, this can't be like like I was just saying, some secret meeting. This has got to be something where perspectives from all over this community are being considered. And that is not to say that that's not what is happening. Uh, there's this uh, perception, I think, sometimes that only like the most powerful programs, you know, that they're like the five families or something like that. And that's not true. Like I can tell you having been there, that's just not accurate. Uh, but like I was encouraged to see uh, more people show up, guests and things like that. And obviously I'm one of those people. I don't have any role on the board. I just showed up. But I was encouraged to see that because I think that that forces the board to see, even if those people don't speak a lot and they typically don't, but when they chime in, once or twice on an issue that's pertinent to them. It's like, okay, this is a perspective that maybe we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so now we have to consider it. We have to think about it. We have to respond to it. So generally I I thought it was a really good board meeting. I think that a lot of good things happened. We're going to break down several of the major things. Uh, But I like, as is sort of my soapbox, I'm going to continue to say that like, okay, we made a step forward on transparency. Now let's take 10 more steps because really you can't, go wrong for the most part when you're trying to uh, bring in more ideas and more perspectives from the broader community. 
uh, trust me, Ben, the finish line on transparency is far, far off. There's plenty of room for us to be going. Many more steps can be taken before we are sitting back in, in our lawn chairs. But uh, I, I do think that to the point that you just made, the fact that there's any members of the board that maybe felt uncomfortable that there were students there or that there were people that weren't on the board there, I think goes to a greater issue that has been discussed by a lot of people recently of just, if you're not on the board, how do you know what the board is thinking? And I think that the fact that that mentality ever exists is really problematic. And I would encourage all of our board members to get away from that line of thinking because we need to reach a point when where our board members feel like if every single person in the AMTO community was listening to those conversations, that they would be perfectly comfortable with that because they would want every member of the AMTO community to know the rationale behind their decisions. I mean, I'm not going to take it so far as to say that every sanction discussion should be discussed. I don't think that. I think that it's important to have levels of anonymity. But when these are affecting all of us, especially with something like the board meeting where they're making these types of decisions, of course everyone should be allowed to know the rationale. We should encourage that. We shouldn't shy away from it. And it's, it is at times frustrating that anyone would ever want there to be less transparency about those types of issues. It just it really doesn't make sense to me, and I feel like it's just what's going to breed more misinterpretations of the rules and more people violating the rules in the board's eyes since they, those people weren't there. They weren't a part of the decision. They don't know what the meaning behind it necessarily was. It's an interesting set of thoughts. I, I, think, I think I agree with part of your underlying premise, which is that it can be challenging for programs who either do not have a board member or do not have someone who sort of like is in the know uh, to sometimes keep up with everything that's going on. Um, I don't think, I think there's a lot of tough questions, particularly in sort of the shadow of vacating the national championship and the varying perspectives on that, that, we don't quite as an organization have a grasp on the ramifications of yet. I think that that's, and that's something we're going to discuss in uh, additional episodes that we're working <laughs> on. But, but the, the gist of what I'm saying is at the very least, I see where your sentiment is coming from. I, I think I wouldn't go as far as, as you would, because I think that for the most part, like generally it's not that hard to understand why the board does what the board does. Uh, most of the decisions I think make sense, but specifically in the realm of invention of fact, which kind of logically leans into the first thing that we're going to discuss. Uh, it is challenging right now, I think for some people to feel comfortable in that arena. And that's just going to mean that we have to make sort of a value judgment as an organization about what is it that we're trying to do and what role is the board going to have in that process? But before we get to the the motions that were discussed there, what you were just saying, Ben, was that you feel like most of the decisions they make, most of the rules they pass, whatnot, are very clear and, and not open to much misinterpretation. Then what's the fear in letting people in on those decision-making processes? What's the fear in allowing people to hear the rationale behind them? I, I just... I can't understand why that would ever be a bad thing for students to be able to hear 
Why are we making this change? Why are we not using the old system? Whatever the change is and for whatever the reason is, if anyone is going to be privy to the discussions, I think the students have to be. I mean, it doesn't really make any sense why we would consolidate information on the board and not disseminate it to all of the rest of the of the people in this community. I just, it, it won't ever make sense to me why we would want to withhold information. And, and I think the last thing that I'll say on that is I actually think, this goes back to my transparency uh, rant, I guess you could call it. I actually think a lot of it is just like, this is how it's always been, right? So it's not like the board's decisions and at least the rationale behind certain motions isn't public, right? So the minutes contain uh, like, the what what occurred and the Roberts Rules of Order process and a rationalization that when you submit a motion, you're, I think, expected or it seems like it's sort of understood that you'll submit like, here's why this motion has been submitted. And those things are public and people can read them. And, and generally, they match up with why the board makes certain decisions. But I do think like I think that your like your argument is right, which is that there is no reason not to provide more information about why things um are being done. For example, we're going to discuss uh, one of the uh, rule changes later on that was proposed related to uh, a possible response committee at the national championship. That didn't pass. And because I was at the board meeting, I'm going to be able to give some insight onto why it didn't pass. Uh, that's not something that you necessarily could glean from the minutes. And I do think there could be a way where things like that I don't know exactly whether it's just like, I mean, a live stream would make it nice and easy or just like an executive summary of, okay, here was the discussion. Here is sort of the rationale behind uh, why people voted the way they did. Things like that could, I think, solve a lot of the concerns that you're bringing up. Right. And I guess that I totally agree with what you're saying of that's kind of my point, that the fact that some things are decided at at the board meeting, whether it's you know decisions to go against for whatnot. And oftentimes they aren't for exactly the same reasons listed in the rationale behind something. To me, that's important. That's important context that people aren't necessarily getting. And we need to find a way to get it to them. Again, my point was simply that the fact that any board members would ever discourage students, and maybe it's not that they're openly discouraging, but the fact that even in the back of their mind, they'd be like, ooh, I wish there weren't students here to listen to why we feel the way that we feel about these things doesn't make sense to me. If you're ashamed of the opinion that you hold on a certain issue, maybe you should revisit why you have that opinion. That's all I feel on the matter. But I hear you. Let's go forward and let's discuss these motions that did actually happen and hopefully give people that information they didn't get. And so the first motion that we want to discuss that was uh, proposed and ultimately uh, passed is CRCO3. Uh, it's a short one, so I'll go ahead and read it. CRCO3 is a motion by the Competition Response Committee to direct the CRC to examine whether any changes to the existing rules governing invention of fact, including its enforcement mechanism, are warranted, and to propose any changes in time to be considered at the December 2019 mid-year meeting. Um, this is uh, a motion that, that was uh, passed without, as far as I can recall, particularly uh, significant discussion. Uh, the other thing, motion that I think was interesting uh, that was passed, uh, not alongside this motion, but was passed at the meeting was Rules 10, which adds a portion of the invention of fact rule, the verb, like the verbatim language of that rule to the judge's presentation, which all, as of right now sort of contains like more of a 
summary of that rule and not like the specific language of the rule. There's not a whole lot, I think, specifically to discuss about this decision, but it's interesting to me that we sort of had another board meeting where what was passed was let's pass a motion that tells us to do something in the future, but doesn't really do anything right now. Yeah. And I got to say, this one was a little bit frustrating for me just because I feel like I'm having deja vu. Like, isn't this what we got last year? And it just, to a certain extent, when we've had what happened at the national championship, everyone and their brother have been waiting for this board meeting so that they would finally make that determination on invention of fact. Now, I think that the fact that they're including uh, the Rules 10 stuff to the judge's presentation is a good idea. I actually think that I've always felt that this should really just be dealt with better in round and we should have better in round ways of dealing with it so that the team that is getting cheated out of isn't getting totally screwed. Like at the end of the day with this process, you know, if we say objectively team A cheated in their round against team B, we have nothing to resolve the situation for team B for the most part. At the most, we just, uh, you know, sanction team A. And to me, that's not great. I mean, team B doesn't necessarily maybe would have won that round if other things had been different. Whatever you want to say about it, I think that we need more in-round uh mitigating factors, resolutions, whatever. And ideally, if it's being involved more in the judge's presentation, hopefully that will mean that judges are more aware of these things. And if they see them happening in the round and they say, oh, that was that was a problem, then they can score accordingly. I will also say that it could be a dangerous territory to get into because speaking from personal experience, sometimes you have a theory that is not in any way breaking the rules, but it is your you know, kind of out there theory and, and take on the case that isn't maybe the way that everyone reads the case the first time. And you get a judge who says, you know, I remember I read the case and I really didn't read it that way. I don't know that I buy your case. It's not that you've invented anything unfair, but the judge just quote unquote didn't buy your case because they had read the the entire case packet and said, you know, I feel like there's a lot of evidence that goes against you, even if it wasn't brought in the trial. So I don't want it to get to that level where judges are kind of making their own decisions beforehand, but I definitely think that some direction is needed, and I'm hoping this is pushing us in the right direction. But my God, at the mid-year meeting, I really hope they have some final decision on this. I want them to change the wording. I want them to make it official and just let us know what they want because I think we're going to just get more sanctions and more teams are going to be getting in trouble until we do it because it's just not it's just not clear to people right now, and I think that that's a problem. So I I think some of that concern is valid in that like we discussed this at the last you know there's there's been some previous years I think really just one you know previous year where there was sort of a a motion to study this issue. The one thing I will say is we just had a very significant invention of fact incident, we'll call it that. Um and I think you could make the argument that it is a good thing, first of all, that it has been, at the time of the board meeting, barely three and a half months since then. And you could make the argument that, like, it is good that the board didn't sort of, like, come in, kick the door down, and say, we're blowing this whole thing up, uh, and here's how. Um, This is a complicated thing to figure out, and for every 
person you talk to, you're going to get another opinion, which makes the whole process challenging. So I will say this. I get why um, this is being handled the way that it is. And I don't know if I think the situation is quite as dire as as you said it, but I do think there are some things that are unclear. And at the very least, in the wake of what happened at the national championship, we obviously have got to do some work to make sure that we feel like we're all on the same page. Uh, So I'll sort of like kind of hold my judgment on this (laughs) because I think a lot of it will depend. I I also think having been to these board meetings, these are not conducive to like sitting down and having like a four hour, like, you know, knock them down, drag them out discussion about invention of fact. That's the type of work that has to happen in like smaller settings and with smaller groups as opposed to like this big, you know, boardroom of 40 or 50 people. But I do really want to see at the mid-year meeting, like you said, something a little bit more concrete that people can sort of dig into and give feedback uh, towards uh, and presumably something that could give some guidance uh, before the empty season kicks off in 2020. Yeah. I think that I agree with most of what you said. I, like as you said at the end i just i hope that something happens soon because it's just it i don't believe it's clear i will say that there were a number of uh of tabled motions and tabled meaning that it was not discussed at the board meeting uh it was not decided for or against it just wasn't discussed it wasn't moved forward um and there were a number that were about invention of fact about rewriting the definition of it and i guess that for me, I would have preferred that the board – I guess that the problem for me is that I think that the board clearly does have their interpretation of this rule. They clearly do have their understanding of what they believe it is. And I feel like to a certain extent, them not giving everyone else that explanation is difficult then to justify everything that's happening. But as you said, hopefully by the mid-year it will be solved. Um, but along this same kind of vein, as as you said earlier, uh, one of the next things we wanted to discuss was ECO8, uh, which essentially was this subcommittee that would be handling uh, national level inventions uh, on the fly, essentially. And this is something that was brought about, of course, because of the Yale Roads final that we had. Again, we're going to have a wonderful – just talk about that later – not to be kind of hypocritical and that we're passing the buck on that, but we're going to do it. We want to do it right. And doing it right may take some time, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this was not passed. They decided not to do it. Um, Ben, I know that you have some thoughts having been there. I'll say at least for my part, I think that I, I kind of reserve my, my opinions on this out of, I don't know what it would look like. I think that, the problem is that I don't think that we should be treating nationals so differently than other tournaments. I get that there are reasons why, such as this is the last tournament anyone can go to. But I also think that there's a reason why we don't have in-round sanctions and we don't do things mid-tournament. It all happens afterwards. I think there are good reasons behind that. It needs to be discussed. And I kind of have concerns about it being live I mean, if they make a decision that people disagree with, you know, then we get into this really, really rough patch. But Ben, I'll, I'll pass it to you. What, what were your thoughts here? So I'm going to make a weird analogy here to explain the discussion and sort of how the discussion went. Um, so for almost 10 years now, 
I have been commissioner of my family fantasy football league. Uh, and every year for the last couple of years, we managed to have a live draft. And uh, my uncle and aunt are, are in the um, draft. And God bless them. They're wonderful people. But every year, there's something that goes wrong technologically for one or both of them. And me as the commissioner, I have the ability to pause the draft and then like get them on the phone, we fix it, and then we go forward, right? I think if that magic power could exist in the real world, I think the vast majority of the board probably would have been okay with this. The concept of can we solve these problems in real time? But I can tell you having been there, and this isn't really reflected in the minutes because it was just sort of like general discussion. The reason this did not pass is largely because nobody knows how it would work and nobody knows if it even could work. Um, there were some fairly, I, I'm not going to get into specifics of who, but there were some fairly big names uh, in terms of people you would think of as prominent people in the community who were very in favor of this. There were also some pretty big names who were pretty opposed to it. And I think the people who were in favor of it were sort of like, this is important. We should do this. I don't know exactly how we would, but we should try to do it. And the people opposed were basically like, this isn't possible. That like this issue comes up with, okay, at nationals, what do you do? You know, at least, okay, after round one, it's Friday night. You've got an evening to figure things out. But what do you do after round two? If this comes up, you've got an hour and a half to turn around a 48 team tournament how do you possibly, I mean, if you change something, it changes all of your pairings. It changes all of your assignments. Do you have to go find the judges? It, there's a ton of logistical concerns. Um, and I say this as someone who is 100% in favor of this motion. I think it is an excellent idea and I think it's really important. But I don't have any better answers than any of the very, very smart people with a lot more mock trial experience than me uh, at the board meeting who didn't have a lot of great answers either. Uh, I like the idea that some people were saying of like, we should task someone, a committee, a group of people with a framework to, or, or a, a task to be like, go try to come up with how this would work. Like maybe it's something I had the thought in my head that like, maybe it only applies to round four, the outcome, what is likely to be an outcome determinative round. Yes, that has problems like, oh, you could, you could cheat in the earlier rounds, but not in round four. But you know, the, the other sanctions would still be in place and you could make sure there's not a situation where someone doesn't advance to the final round because of misconduct in round four. I, I bottom line is I think there's a lot of general support for the idea behind this, but uh, the point was made by someone that this could run the risk. I don't necessarily know if I agree with this, but you run the risk of turning every round into a two tiered system where you have your trial and then you have your appeal. Um, and I think that reflects the general concern with, okay, how would this work and how do we even implement this if we decide it's something we want to do? Yeah, all that makes sense. I think that that sentiment is pretty much where I lie as well of just, it would be like, I think that it's hard for people to say that it isn't a good idea if we were like your fantasy draft and could magically pause everything and deal with it. I mean, as we've kind of seen with a lot of these processes, it seems like the sanction process can take a little while. So, uh, you know, it would be a pretty long pause, it sounds like. But if that could happen, of course, it'd be great if we could deal with this stuff right then and then continue with this new knowledge of what, what the decision was. But since we can't, 
and there isn't an alternative to that pause button, we kind of need to work in the world that we are currently in. Yeah, I think that's that's sort of where it it ends up, at least for now. The next one that we want to discuss is Rules 04. Um, so Rules 04 deals with hostile witnesses. And the actual motion, uh, this was um, submitted by Justin Bernstein on behalf of Anna Eldridge from Rhodes. Uh, and it says, uh, limitation on hostile witness portrayals. Students may play witnesses who are reluctant to testify and or reasonably hesitant to offer testimony adverse to a particular side of side or party. Student attorneys may not, in any case, move the court to declare witnesses hostile or adverse for the purpose of leading the witness. There's a rationale submitted. It's a long paragraph. I'm not going to read the entire thing. But the gist of it is, uh, each attorney in mock trial is required to conduct both a a direct examination and a cross-examination because they show two separate and unique skills. Cases are often written with an eye towards balancing by sort of contemplating the ability to have strong or weak crossing options. By scripting a cross-examination through an adverse or hostile witness, students are not demonstrating their ability to conduct a direct or a cross. Leading a hostile or adverse witness also creates additional challenges in terms of invention. It becomes difficult to impeach based on sort of innuendo and attorney leading questions. And it can put the attorney doing the cross-examination into a position of dealing with a witness who uh, drains time and is non-responsive. Uh, while hostile witnesses exist in real courtrooms, uh, given the boundaries of this activity, there doesn't seem to be a need for practicing the skill in mock trial. That was the rationale behind this motion. There were some very strong opinions on both sides of this motion. It ultimately, I think by a relatively narrow margin, did not pass. Uh, Drew, my understanding is, and I know this will shock the community, but you have some strong opinions on this. Uh, I try to always keep the community on its toes. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, look, at the end of the day, the reason that we have hostile witnesses is not because people are saying, let me cheat the system, in my opinion. It is because we have cases written where we have these witnesses that are swing witnesses or are – it's almost always with swing witnesses for the most part – where they're swing witnesses but they're pretty clearly biased to one side. And I can't understand why we have a problem with hostile witnesses if we're going to write cases like that. If you're going to write a case like that, it makes the most sense for the witnesses to portray that witness as hostile, as resistive in some way. To the point that in the rationale about it becoming you know, not a full direct, not a full cross, and kind of that, that air in between, I think it goes to a point of adaptability, and it's important for us to be teaching adaptability in trial and not to just program robots, and I think that is important. But I also get the point that's being made there. I, I think that I think that if you just from the second or third question are like, Your Honor, I'm entering this witness as hostile and then proceed to cross examine your own witness, yeah, I think that that's not really fair to compare that direct to the direct that everyone else is doing. It's just not really the same the same skill sets are not really being tested. And I, I get that rationale. But I think that to just downright ban hostile witnesses maybe isn't the solution. Again, in my opinion, if you really want to like not have that, I just think you write the witnesses differently. I think if you write them in such a way where having a adverse party – you're not going to be able to have an adverse party testify for you, we won't have hostile witnesses. And I think that until we get to that, I, I think any question of banning them just feels a little too extreme for me. So uh, I think you're wrong. Um, <laughs> and 
I think that this motion is excellent and I'm disappointed that it did not pass. Uh, and I hear everything you're saying. And I am not someone who has any interest in this activity becoming robotic. But this activity is formulaic. And what I mean by that is we have established parameters in this activity. And it's exactly what Anna wrote in her motion, which is we score direct examinations against other direct examinations. And when you allow this to happen, aside from the fact that I'm just going to be honest with you, every single one that I hear, I've, I think is stupid. And that's just a personal preference. But like setting that aside, it's contrived. It doesn't fit at all into what it is that we're doing. It, everyone knows that it's this sort of like spiel that you and your attorney have come up with. And I know that's half of what we do. But I don't see the value in allowing this to be a thing that just sort of goes against everything that we do. It doesn't fit into the parameters of, okay, we teach judges. These, these are the, you know, if you look, I know nobody ever looks at it, but if you look on the first page of the ballot, there are like things that you score attorneys and witnesses on, and we instruct them, score this direct examination and score this direct examination. And in real life, if you have a hostile witness, which by the way, is, is not a super common thing anyways, no. but like in real life, obviously you're dealing with a sort of a spontaneous sporadic situation where anything can happen. And as someone, as a trial attorney, even most, I mean, I very rarely deal with these situations, but you still are dealing with situations where things are crazy and anything can happen. But in this activity, for better or for worse, we've decided that these are the parameters that students are required to perform. And therefore, we are going to score them in such a way where you score them against each other. And this, to me, doesn't fit anywhere in that system. And someone, I made that perspective at the board meeting, and someone kind of flipped it on me and was like, yeah, that's why we should allow this, because it's an opportunity for people to do things differently. That's funny. I was about to say that. <laughs> I know. And I, I think that that's an easy response, and I just think it's wrong. Because I think that okay. if we want to encourage creativity, we need to change our rules. We need to change if we want to, if we want hostile witnesses to be a thing. We need to write our our scoring rules. We need to have our judges' presentation acknowledge this is permitted if a team successfully does it under the rules of evidence. And if that is the case, here are some guidelines for how to score it. Because right now, it just doesn't fit into what it is that we tell teams to do. So, just to the last thing you said. I have no problem with that. I think that that would be a great solution to to what you're bringing up. I just think that I agree with the other person that mentioned something at the board meeting of like, I think portraying a hostile witness and directing a hostile witness is super hard. I'm speaking from personal experience of having seen other teams do it, having talked in practices about maybe trying it with my team. And we rarely, rarely, rarely see it work. It oftentimes does not come off well. It does not score well. People don't buy it. It doesn't make sense. And when it is done properly, it is because it is artful. It is extremely well done. And it is done by people that really know what they're doing with it. And I think that we deserve, that those people deserve 
to be acknowledged for their creativity, for how well they handled the situation on both sides, both the directing attorney and the crossing attorney. I think it is an opportunity, as I said earlier, to show off our creativity, to show off our ability to have a spontaneous trial, to show off some improv skills that, again, aren't normally parts of mock trial. We're, it's sad that so much is scripted in mock trial as it is. And I think that the more that we're able to get it more like real court, where you have to think on the fly, where you have to make some adaptions, the better, in my opinion. I, I get the point that obviously the hostile witness that and the directing attorney, that that is scripted for them. But I don't know that we should get away from that simply on that alone. I mean, look, there are plenty of judges that in mock trial, I've seen this happen of they port, you know, a team is portraying a witness as hostile. They try to enter them as hostile and the judge says, no, you don't get to do that. I, that's a pretty stark change. That team has to make some pretty big changes all of a sudden. It's not going to be easy for them. I, I just think that it is a high risk, high reward type of thing to do. And I don't know that I think we should discourage it on the mere point of it's not what I think mock trial should be. It's not the formula that fits for me. Maybe we need to change the rules a little bit in terms of the judge instruction, but I, I'm glad that it did not get passed. I think it would have been a little bit over the top. Yeah, and, and I think you can make an argument that it also, like, not, I don't think it was proposed for this reason, but I do think, like, there may have been some sentiment that was a little reactionary given that while the, the you know, the witness in the final round wasn't truly hostile, they, like, you could interpret, you know, that it was sort of like towing that line a little bit. Um, I, I think anything too much further would be, you know, sort of circular from what we've already discussed. I think I just struggle with like, yes, you're right. And this point was brought up by, by someone at the board meeting that yes, the person has to be prepared for a presiding judge like me who probably wouldn't <laughs> allow it because under it's a very rare thing and you have to establish a lot of things that some presiders don't understand. But if you're allowed to do it, it is the most in, in a scripted activity. It is the most scripted thing you'll ever see, right? It has to be. And so it's like this notion that it's this like way to show off our skills of like working on the fly. It's not, it's the opposite of that. It's, can we write a script down to the letter to portray this fake hostile witness in this already fake trial and I know maybe, I mean, we already write scripts and, and like plan things out, but it's this like, you're on the same team and everyone knows that you're on the same team. And yeah, if you're portraying a character that is hesitant, that's one thing, but everyone knows that at the break, you're going to go stand in the same huddle. So it just seems silly to me. And I don't, I don't get it, and I don't think we should do it. But I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously there are arguments for both sides, and I think that you're right that to continue to litigate this may be a bit circular. So in the interest of moving on and not wasting anyone else who's listening's time, uh, the next one is going to be a bit of a doozy. But uh, TFC03 was uh, essentially – it was proposed by Justin Bernstein, and it essentially revamps the pairing system at Oryx. I'm not going to try to read the entire uh, rationale and, and explanation of it. And I think that I'm going to try my best to summarize what exactly the change is. Um, and Ben, 
you know, correct me if I'm if I'm misstating it, but essentially, uh, what happens is instead of the straight, you know, high high pairing for rounds two and three, and then power protected round four, what we do is we group each of the teams that of certain orcs into different pools: pool A, B, C, and D. And from there, you say, okay, every team at this tournament will play one team in pool A, one team in pool B, one in C, and one in D. And in that way, you're kind of power balancing your schedule and making sure that there's no one team that faces the next four, the the four top TPR teams in their orcs and not breaking out to nationals because they had a horrible schedule. And we've seen this every year. You can look at any year and find a couple orcs where someone has a, a CS of 22, 23 points. And you look at the teams they played and said, well, all those teams went to nationals. And that team ended up going four and four or five and three, whatever, you know, that team maybe has the talent to be at nationals, but just because of their schedule didn't make it. Um, I personally love this idea. I think that really anything to fix the pairing system we have right now is good. Uh, I have personally pushed a number of other ones. My only reservation with this system is the actual logistics behind it. Um, apparently Justin has you know, done all the permutations and knows that it is doable and there aren't going to be tons of conflicts round four. I, I guess I will believe it when I see it. Um, but I trust that the rest of the CRC or the TFC, sorry, um, are going to be looking at this and they're going to make sure that it does work. And I'm excited to see it implemented in that case. I think that if it can be implemented and work logistically, then I hope that it will kind of solve this problem. And ideally, uh, those pools, if they're breaking down by TPR, TPR is a fairly good determinant. It's not the end-all, be-all. But at the end of the day, you know, playing four teams from what that hypothetical pool A is going to be is going to be a hard schedule. It just is. And I think that this is doing a good job of stopping that from happening. So I'm glad you brought up that last point because I want to speak to that in just one second. Uh, the thing I'll say about the motion itself, I trust Justin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Justin has been doing mock trial for a long time. He's done it on a lot of different levels in a lot of different ways. I don't know exactly how this is going to work. I think it sounds good, and I, I trust him to figure it out. Uh, as to that last point, one of the cool things at the board meeting, uh, so I'm on the analytics committee. I was last year. I'll be on the analytics committee again this year. And last year, it was primarily Andy Hogan and Sam Jahinger and myself, and now Kyle West is joining as well. And we had a really interesting discussion in our committee meeting at the board meeting about how can we help Justin by trying to come up with some ideas for like, and he kind of proposed this in the discussion as well. And we were just trying to get more specific, like, like TPR plus. So this notion of how can we use something like, like regionals ballots weighted in some way against your cs and factored in in some way to try to get a little bit more recency to adjust for a drastically overperforming team from the previous year or a drastically underperforming team from the previous year nothing's going to be perfect uh but i think the analytics committee is excited to kind of take a crack at you know i agree with you that i think tpr is is like largely predictive and it's it, it may not be predictive at the like one versus two level, like the, the right, most granular right. level. But when you broaden it out and sort of take a zoomed out approach like this motion does, 
I think it gets pretty accurate. So if we can find a way to just tweak it a little bit for the purposes of this motion to add in some recent, like really just have to be some sort of regionals results, uh, then I think this is a positive. I think it's a good thing. And I am excited to see it implemented. And I am excited to be just as stressed and just as confused as I usually am in orcs, but in a whole new way. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the biggest things about this that I personally like is it does not punish you for doing well in the first round. Like one of the biggest problems that that a lot of people see at orcs is that there's almost this incentive to lose your first round. I mean, not the whole, like you don't want to lose both ballots because that's not good. Crack analysis from Drew Evans there. I mean, okay. But look, I mean, at the end of the day, the fact that it's been high, high, and there are just so many really, really good teams at orcs, if you are one of the top teams in round two, in order for you to get there, you're going to have to beat a really good team round two. You're going to have to beat another good team round three, and then you get your power protected round four. But getting through those second two rounds is just really hard. And I think that for a lot of people, it's almost easier to go one and one the first round, take a, a middle tier team round two, three and one. You're doing a, a better team, but at least not a four and oh the path becomes a lot easier and we're kind of rewarding that round one split over a round one in which you sweep. And I like that this pairing system would kind of reward you for winning ballots and not discourage that in any way. It also means that beating a good team really matters. It means that you're not going to have to play another really good team. I mean, we see the problem with random, completely random pairing is that round one, if you're, you know, whatever school and you're playing UVA or Miami or Yale or whoever, you know, that sucks for you. You're kind of screwed at that point. I mean, let's say you, you know, you do the impossible, you take a ballot. Okay. Like you're not rewarded for that in any way. You may face another great team in round two. Like there's no, okay, you played the good team. Now you're done with them. You know, I, I, I'm excited about it. I, I agree with everything you said, Ben, I'm excited to see what happens with it. Um, and it did pass, so it's going to happen now. Right, exactly. And and the one I'll add one thing before we move on to our next thing, which is that this was, and I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but there were several times during the meeting where there was a lot of discussion of sort of an aspirational goal for AMTA, which is that at some point in the future, uh, basically getting to a point where we have three judge panels at all AMTA tournaments. And this pairing system becomes, I think, even better at orcs if you have three judge panels hmm. because you end up in a situation you know my one concern is if you only get one crack at a really good team and as a really good team you know or as a really good team if you get one of those you know you play a quadrant four team that you beat pretty comfortably and you just get a judge who you think just sort of got the result wrong mm -hmm. that can matter a lot if this means you're guaranteed not to have another quadrant four team over the course of the mm -hmm. weekend, but there's already a lot of randomness that's involved in this. And, and I think this does a good job, at least on paper of quieting out some of that noise. Yeah, for sure. So the next thing that we have on here, I think we got two more we want to discuss is rules. Oh, seven. Uh, this is the one it was initially proposed and a number of different forms dealing with the time for openings. I think it was originally proposed to say lengthen openings to six and shorten closings to eight. It eventually was passed in a form where like statements get a total of 14 uh, minutes total to be allocated however you want 
with whatever you don't use in opening available to you in closing, the only restriction remaining in place is that you can't give more than a five minute rebuttal, which I think is called the please, dear God, don't give longer than a five minute rebuttal rule. I wasn't entirely sure how I felt about this rule and I had some concerns and now I've come over 100%. I think it's a great change. Uh, we actually, we had our uh, scrimmage recently, our summer scrimmage, and we used this rule for the first time. And I think it's great. I think it takes a lot of pressure off of openers. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also think closers don't necessarily need nine minutes all the time. You know, I was given one of my kids a hard time. I have a student, I won't say who, who is the master of the five minute and three second opening statement, right? Like it does not matter what I cut or what we change or how we do things, their opening will be five minutes and three seconds. And they are always sitting down or saying, find the defendant guilty or whatever, as they're getting time called on them. And I'm very excited to not feel like that situation's going to happen because yeah. I don't worry about that as much on closing. So I see very little downside to this. It's similar. It's a similar rule to what exists now at trial by combat. And I think it's going to be something that the community likes. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's a good change overall. I think that at the the amount of closers who had scripted out exactly the nine minutes that they were going to say, they deserve to be punished. They need to learn to adapt. You are closing. You should not script out nine minutes. I think that the way most closers work is that they kind of have a beginning bit. They have, I want to say this bit in the middle at some point, and they have, I want to end on this when I see that I have a minute or two minutes left. And that's the way you should close, in my opinion. And that means that if you have eight minutes or nine minutes or 10 minutes, it doesn't really change what you're doing. You can kind of do the same thing. But exactly to your point, Ben, it means that openers don't have this stressful countdown as they're trying to get out, you know, find or guilty, find or liable, whatever it may be. Uh, And I think that's a good thing. It's just, it's frustrating. It's silly. As someone that has opened and closed, time feels way, way worse on opening than it does on closing. I think it's a good change. I don't think it needs to even be discussed anymore. I love it. I'm happy with it. Uh, So to move on, uh, one of the things that we also wanted to mention was that uh, TFC 07 uh, was basically, uh, it was kind of in conjunction with the the pairing system that Justin suggested, uh, but it's basically going to be where we move back to the eight orc system that we had uh, the year before last. So uh, as many people know, this year we had nine orcs and each of those orcs had five bids each. We'll be moving back to eight orcs with six bids each um, and the rest of the uh, the regionals pairings, I believe they're going to be adjusting them to to fit that orc system. I don't think that that's been released in any form yet from looking at the minutes, but hopefully that will come out soon. Uh, I think that, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of this. I think that this is kind of not addressing the actual problem. Uh, I think that most people agree that nine orcs, five bids was not a great solution, but I think that the reason it wasn't a good solution was because it's not enough bids to nationals, and we just needed to have more bids available to nationals. Going back to eight orcs means that our orcs – like we're not changing the problem. The problem is that there are too many good teams, and the systems that we have don't always allow the right teams to get through. I uh, I don't know. It's just I think that 
whether you, I mean, so the only difference now is that you have a couple more good teams in each orcs and a couple fewer teams are making it out of regionals. I kind of liked that there were a lot of teams that made it out of regionals last year. It means that more teams are experiencing higher levels of mock trial. That's a good thing, in my opinion. I hated that last year there were teams that had five wins at regionals and didn't get to go to orcs. I think mostly those were B teams, but still, that's not great. Um, and I, Look, the fact that there were teams that went 6-2 and two at Orcs this year and didn't make it, obviously that sucks. Not saying it doesn't. I want to have a, a, a solution where we don't have that happening. But I just have concerns that this solution is not the one to fix that problem. It just continues to perpetrate it. So this motion specifically did not pass. Uh, the, there is no rule in place now that mandates eight orcs. However, okay. uh, TAC, the, the representatives for the tournament administration committee, did reveal that they intend to have eight. They tend to return to eight orcs for this upcoming system, uh, this upcoming season. So, in essence, the idea behind the motion will be implemented this year. It's just that, that in theory, Emta could go back to nine orcs in the future. Um, right. right. I think most people agree with what you're saying. I think that everyone, I think, agrees that nine orcs was not the problem. It was the five bids that was the problem. And you ended up with uh, a couple of situations where multiple six and two teams didn't advance. That's not ideal. Unfortunately, right now, we're not in a position where Nationals hosts are being able to have 56 teams. And so, you know, we kind of are back to where we started. I think the only thing that I'll say on this is hopefully Justin's pairing system will help that hopefully the new system will allow orcs while they're still going to be like a crazy stressful hellhole of awfulness and terribleness. um, And that's me putting it lightly. uh, Hopefully at least the fact that you're guaranteed to only play one team in that top upper echelon. Now at orcs that could only mean that could be like the top 15 in the country or something like that. If you're like where drew and I compete, but uh I'm hoping that that will make things a little bit better. But bottom line is, I think everyone kind of understands that this is kind of a Band-Aid that isn't really fixing the problem that everyone is aware exists. And you know what? The the problem is one that, as we say a lot of the time on this podcast, is going to require all the minds of AMTA, of everyone kind of coming together and working on it. At the end of the day, like... This just requires more hosts. It means that we need to find hosts that have access to larger venues, that have access to larger judging pools, and these will only be tackled by everyone working together. One thing I will say, I think that I am – I think that everyone agrees that mock trial is growing in popularity. We're seeing it, it blow up right now. Every year we have more colleges, more programs competing and in my mind, that is creating ideally more alumni. We're having, you know, the next generation is kind of moving through. I've now graduated. Uh, you know, ideally, this means that we have more judges available to us. We have more people that want to do this activity, that want to be involved in it, that want to give back to it. And my hope is that as we continue that trend and we have more and more alumni that want to do more with mock trial, that we begin to chip away at this problem, that we begin to find more hosts potentially, and that we begin to find more judges. So hopefully it'll be fixed in the future. But yeah, for now, band-aiding a problem. And I don't, I don't really know that the band-aid is going to even hold for that long. So the last thing that we wanted to discuss uh, is a proposed rule that I want to be very clear. Uh, 
did not pass. And in fact, was never actually voted on. Uh, and that was TFC 05. It really had two components to the rule. Uh, I think the much less controversial part was to expand rosters to 12 students at the NCT. The much more controversial part was to limit uh, the NCT to one team per school. Uh, this was so the TFC, by the way, is like the, is the tournament future committee. We should have said that probably an hour ago when we started recording. But that was sort of an ad hoc committee that that Will assigned and that Justin and Toby, uh, Justin Bernstein and Toby Hyten's co-chaired. And they proposed like a whole, you know, they basically did a spaghetti defense of ideas where they tried a whole bunch of different things. They then they kind of acknowledged this at the meeting and kind of tossed some stuff against the wall to see what sort of proverbially sticked. Um, this is one of those motions where it was like kind of some ideas that came out of the discussions that they had. And uh, there was a lot of discussion about this motion. And at the meeting, before we even got into any of it, Justin said, Hey, I would like you all to vote to re to refer this back to our committee for further study, because we've gotten a lot of response to this. And we want to sort of like consider the implications more. Uh, I'll, I'll say two quick thoughts on this. Number one, the roster's expansion is fantastic. We should do that. We should do it tomorrow. I wish that we had done that at the board meeting. I don't see any reason why we can't do that. Uh, there's just, I, I literally can't think of a single downside to the one team per school. So it, it would be, probably be a little bit of a waste of time to spend a great deal of uh, our airtime discussing this because I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But I think there is, I think you're just going to run into a situation with this where you're going to deal with people with different philosophies. I think there are some legitimate concerns. I read some perjuries posts about like program chemistry and how this could have like a severe impact on programs who are good enough to have an A and a B who are competing to try to get bids at the nationals. That's, I think, a fair concern with this. At the same time, it's an interesting idea that could maybe like help out a little bit in terms of like how brutal orcs can be and, and things like that. So I don't know. I, I My gut says to me that I don't think it's a great idea, but at the same time, I feel like B teams at nationals tend to be like, I was looking at some recent tab summaries and I feel like it's like almost all of them do sort of mediocre to not great. And occasionally you get a Yale B or the UCLA B team that won the national championship several years ago, right? But those are significant outliers, right? Most of the B teams who advance to nationals, you know, Ohio State B had a lot of success and that's this year. I was year. about to say that, yeah. But several of the B teams and Nats this year, uh, I mean, and this is not a shot at any of those excellent teams, but didn't win a lot of ballots. And that isn't i'm not saying that necessarily to say that's a reason we shouldn't have them there if they earned their spots especially now that we're hopefully decreasing some of the randomness of orcs that might have led to some of them getting there in the first place uh so i don't necessarily think this is the uh the way to do it but i don't know i was kind of intrigued by it at the very least so uh, i'm gonna push back on two things you mentioned ben uh the first now i'm I want to be noted I'm playing devil's advocate for this one at least. Uh, the, I'm going to first be talking about the expanded rosters. I think it's good that we expanded the rosters, but I have heard people express this, and I want to express it for those people that have made this point, uh, that it can have concerns to programs where, especially if they're student-run, if they want to allow people to be able to go, um, and if there's pressure from the rest of their program 
to let more people compete that it takes away from their ability to be competitive if they have a 12 student cap and it's kind of then forced upon a team to take all 12 of those uh, slots. But I also, again, agree with what you said. I am for it. I think that in general, it should be just up to the teams to do what they want. And I don't think it's a bad thing. But I, there are definitely people that were not a fan of that aspect. Uh, now, on to the, the one team at, at Nats. So I, I personally am for it, but not necessarily for some of the reasons that you stated. So what you were saying about competitiveness of the teams, I, I just don't really agree with out of we're replacing them with teams that inherently did worse than them at Orcs. And I'm not going to sit here and claim that, that B teams that like, I think it's kind of presumptive of us to say that, Oh, simply because it was a B team and because there's an A team that went five and three or, you know, five, two and one or whatever, that they're going to be more competitive at nationals. I don't really think that that's the case. As you cited with both Yale, with OSU, uh, there have been a number of programs recently that have had tremendous success from B programs. And I think that we shouldn't be discounting them just because they're a B program, a B team from a program. That being said, I have two main points of why I think that we should just have one team from each school. The first is to your point about orcs being brutal. I totally agree about that. It's just a problem. I think that this is something that rather than the Band-Aid solution we have with the the eight orcs solution, I think this is a better long-term solution. I think that this allows for more teams to go to nationals. I think that it means that national that orcs becomes a little bit less brutal. And I this argument has been brought up. I do not buy the argument that is made on perjuries of like teams giving up and not trying that hard. It happens at regionals. It's not like C and D teams don't try at regionals. Teams are going to try hard at orcs. There's enough randomness. Hell, if you're a phenomenal program, as we Rhodes, Yale, Miami, whoever, there's the chance that your A team doesn't make it. We see it happen all the time. Like great, great programs, A teams don't make it. Their B teams make it. And they, you know, battle royale out for who gets the bid. There is no way that a B team is going to give up and not try hard. Like, that's just not, no one's going to do that. But it does create more opportunity for people. And I actually think my second point is that it's just more interesting to have one team from each school. This is the finals. This is what it all comes down to. This should be the best team from each school. There's a reason, in my opinion, that Top Gun, that Trial by Combat, that these tournaments are one representative from each school. Look, could I find a couple other people from some of the top programs that deserve to be there as far as they are just, you know, they are as good as some of the rest of the field? Yeah, but they are not the best from their school. And it sucks, but we I kind of think that we should just have one representative, one team, the very best they can put up, and that should be their representative. I know that there are people that that are particularly from a lot of those prominent programs that are really successful that don't want to see that happen because they want to allow their B teams to compete. And at the end of the day, my thing is that if they're that good, 
then they'll make it as a senior or as a junior or whenever they make it to that A team. If they are that good, if they do deserve that spot there, then they will make it eventually. I'm not really worried about them making it. But I am worried about the problematic orcs that we've been seeing. It has just become unsustainable, and I don't think that the current system we have works. And I think that this is a solution that I see that does fix this problem. Again, at least for the short term, it, it, I think it band-aids it better than, uh, than the 07 solution is. So for those of you out there that want to send hate mail to Drew, do it on Facebook. His last name is... No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> hey, I know I'm going to get it. It's okay. <laughs> you know, it is what I already it is, do. But, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I am not sure about this. I don't agree with a lot of the last few things you were saying. I, I like, it's interesting. I, I see some merit to the idea that nationals should be like the best team from 64 or from 64, from thinking NCAA from 48 perps. Like I, I wish it was 64. Hey, you know, Hey, look, as, one day, one day. as a, you know, UMBC, like I'm all about 64 team <laughs> tournaments, but it'd been a couple episodes as I dropped a reference. Um, there you go. But, uh, like I think there's some interesting like I think there's some merit to that. Um I do think it makes me uncomfortable the idea of having orcs with some teams that like it's not quite the same as like when you're you have a regional where you have a C and D team competing and A and B have already gotten bids. And so it's like, well, that C and D team they can get trophies, but it doesn't, they, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they don't really mean very much. Obviously, unless for some reason you had like an A and a B competing at different orcs on different weekends and A had already gotten a bid. And so B is like, well, who the hell cares? Um, which could happen, but it would be pretty rare. I could see, you know, like, I don't know, a, a team like, like Rhodes B where it's like, okay, Rhodes is getting through, you know, Rhodes A is getting a bid. And so uh, I could see the merits of that team being like, well, what are we doing here? You know, and, and and I I'm not necessarily saying that they would do that, but I think given the fact that it's still a pretty small percentage of B teams that get through, and it it is at best a temporary fix. I think my gut reaction is that while I was intrigued by some of this, the, the ideas behind this, I'm not in favor of it. And quite frankly, it does not sound like it's going to be coming back anytime soon, no. given the what seemed like a fairly strong negative reaction from the community. Oh, I, I'm definitely in the minority on it. Uh, let, me, let me just push back briefly on this, and then we can wrap it up. What you were saying about Rhodes, I mean, would you not say the same thing about Michigan or NYU last year? I mean, would you not, if you're the B team from NYU or Michigan, aren't you saying, oh, of course my A team is going to make it through? And then you look at this year and you go, oh, uh, wait a minute. No, they didn't. So I, I I don't know that I buy that argument. I mean, I think that there certainly is – it's orcs. Like it's really hard to make it out of orcs. It, random stuff happens, and I don't think that any team assumes that they're automatically going to make it. And more than that, I mean, you made the point. There are C&D teams that go to regionals, that try hard at regionals, that get, that get awards at regionals, despite the fact that they already know – both the A and B team have already gotten their bids and they still try. I think that th this community is serious enough about this activity that I don't think that that's, that's, that concern is there. I think the people would still try hard. I think there's still 
a lot of accolades to be gained for saying we we got an award at Oryx that we placed at Oryx. That is certainly a a huge accomplishment to make. I just don't think that we need to have multiple teams from different from the same program at nationals. But again, I know I'm in the minority. I think that considering the fact that I'm in the minority and considering the way people reacted to it, I think that the right decision was made. We shouldn't be doing this if if it's going to be so damaging and so frustrating to so many people. Well, I think that is pretty much a complete rundown of everything at the board meeting. Uh, there was a lot of interesting things. We actually saw some interesting rule changes. You know, I'm I'm actually really excited mm-hmm. about seeing the uh, openings and closings. You know, time change in action. We like I said we did it at the scrimmage, but I'm excited to see it at our uh, invitational. And you know, in terms of podcast content, uh, we're we both had pretty busy summers, but we're trying to get caught up on a lot of good stuff, and we're hoping to have several episodes in your feed real soon. Uh, I think, Drew, I think uh, while maybe we've been promising this for a while and no one actually believes we're going <laughs> to deliver, uh, I think that people are going to enjoy some of the stuff that we'll have coming out pretty soon. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about it. I think that I, we, we kind of say this a lot, but again, to everyone that is about to go on a long car ride and checking their feed and not seeing a new episode, it's not that we've forgotten about you. We We do enjoy doing this. We love doing it. We just have a lot of other stuff going on. And as Ben said before, when we have guests on, there are a lot of complications. Got to find the right time to do it. Got to do a lot more editing. At least Ben has to do that editing. Uh, (laughs) But we're going to try to get it out there. We're going to do it as quickly as we can. And we're not, we haven't forgotten. Um, Yeah, we're definitely going to, I guess we can just give a brief preview. We're going to be doing, uh, you know, a review of the case once it comes out, uh, hopefully in the next coming week or so. And then uh, we're hoping to do one on we'll finally get around to doing that final round one and talk about what exactly happened and hopefully get opinions from multiple sides and get to the bottom of this. Yeah, we got a lot of stuff uh, that we are working on with that. Um, And alongside of that, like I said, we've got another episode recorded that I'm close to finished editing that I think people are going to enjoy and that will hopefully come out soon after this one does. Yeah, it's it's a good one. It'll be a fun one. Well, as always, Drew, I've had fun. You know, the, like the board meeting episodes. I I don't know, like I I don't know how how much broad interest there is, but I find them to be a lot of fun. I think sort of the wonky aspect of like the guts of this activity is interesting, and I encourage people if you're able to have the resources, uh, to um, you know, to do the board meeting next year. I think they said, if I recall correctly, um. Our former uh, friend of the pod, Adam Detsky, is hosting everyone in Colorado. Uh, I will most certainly be in attendance for that board meeting. Uh, If I went to Vegas, I can't not go to Colorado. Uh, And so I think it's it's well worth people's time if they're able to have the resources. At the very least, hopefully we're able to provide, you know, some insight on what goes on and some behind the scenes looks at, at what happened at the meeting. Yeah, I was about to say that I, I'm. This is my favorite episode to do, just because I think that it is actually really important for everyone to hear. Uh, I tell my team to watch it. I say my team. I tell half of her to watch it, uh, listen to it, whatever. Uh, they probably won't, but to everyone out there, really, if you are listening to it and the rest of your program isn't, I would encourage more so than most. Tell everyone to listen to this. This is going to be affecting them. And I think that I hope that we broke down the issues in a way that was understandable to everyone and hopefully informative. You know, hopefully it was helpful. Hopefully it was informative. At the very least, we both talked a lot. And, you know, like that's what we do. We're at least consistent. (laughs) So they know what to expect. 
Well, that's true. They, at this point, <laughs> if people don't know what to expect, they had they have been paid it's attention. On you. <laughs> true enough. Well, as always, we really appreciate people uh, tuning in and listening to us. We'll be back in your feed real soon. In the meantime, and until next time, this has been the Mock Review with Ben and Drew. <laughs>